Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, January 26th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives. As we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships, and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland, Aramaic, Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope that people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone, or send us an email 
You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And if we get one of those comments or questions or testimonials from you, we'll address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback or input. We greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it very much easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for you. So we have plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials. Give us a call. Press 1 on your phone. Let us know what's what's been simmering with you for uh, the last 24 hours or so since or 23 hours anyway, since we had our last show and read through part of Lesson 9. We started working into Lesson 9 on the way of mastery. Also last night we had a support group, and I did a worksheet by way of modeling for people, and then somebody else did a worksheet, and um, and then there's quite a bit of discussion. So... Um, my worksheet ended up being quite emotional. I was doing a worksheet on thoughts I have about people who have left relationships because they were selfish. And it's one of those topics in my life that's done many many worksheets on over the years and other kinds of processing, journaling and uh, the emotional freedom technique tapping and the neuroemotional technique which also uses knowledge of the acupuncture meridians and and um, I had quite a bit of emotions throughout the evening and um, by the time I got home it was 10 o'clock so I didn't do any more processing last night but been thinking about it this morning. I know the direction I will take my work over the weekend, and again, um, it's just one of the most, I say it in practically every introduction, these are some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. And so as I go into the weekend, I am I have every confidence that I can make even more progress on this without having to, you know, go see a therapist or get some other treatment modality uh, done for me or to me simply by doing some more of the EFT tapping, which I did several rounds last night in the middle of the group, doing some of the journaling that has come to mind. Michael calls that targeted journaling the mind shifter tool. And doing more worksheets as appropriate. And when I say as appropriate, that means when I am able to identify a thought that generates a negative emotion, that's all I really need 
to create a worksheet because that thought, the way we understand the system, the mind-body energy system in humans, the way it works is whenever I'm in the middle of experiencing a negative emotion, it is going to be because I have been pouring mental energy into a thought pattern that's generating that emotion. Every time I come up with that thought, I'll know I have it right because when I think that thought, the emotion gets stronger. When I have a thought that the more I think it, the stronger the negative emotion gets, I can instantly know that thought contains a goal that's not getting met in my mind. And there I can just work that around a little bit and say, wait a minute, if the opposite of this thought were to happen, what would that look like? What would that sound like? And there's my goal. And now I'm on, off and running for the worksheet. I say, I, Tim, who in love, am feeling this emotion, and here's what's going on in my life, and here's the thought I'm using to create that emotion. And in that thought, and that emotion will be wiped out if only X, Y, and Z goal were met. I put that on the worksheet. I read a little bit about reminding myself that my thoughts are always off the mark when they result in a negative thought or a negative emotion. I choose to align myself with truth and honor truth above my stories. And then I cancel my thought and my goal in that worksheet and ask to be shown something else and do a little meditative process and watch what gets revealed that is the simplicity and and also unspeakably the power of the reality management worksheet process so 563-999-3581 if you call that number and press 1 we can have a conversation what would you like to have us do with the next 50 minutes or less. Maybe we'll, depending upon who's on the show and what people want to do, we might start the second hour earlier since that is a, a recording again today. But there's plenty of time for input, comments, questions. We don't have anybody currently in the chat room. That has been essentially malfunctioning off and on through the week. I wonder sometimes if Podbean would have a better interface. It surprises me at times that sometimes people show up in the chat room and then they just disappear without any. Or there's a part of something being typed and then they disappear, and I wonder if that's because they decided to jump out or if the technology is malfunctioning. So since no one has a hand up, and this is a Friday, and I think my voice might hold out, I'm going to continue reading in the way of mastery, Lesson 9, with the powerful title, all events are neutral. 
The next section where we stopped was titled, Look with Innocence on What You Value. Now, this book is so wonderful, powerful, flexible. It's like a chameleon. It's like a it's like a multi-purpose tool. It's like the Swiss Army knife of spirituality for me. I can pick it up sometimes and I can just start reading like the the first two paragraphs from lesson 3 where it's just so loving. And it says, you know, if I search all the mansions in my father's house, I can't find anything that can truly describe the magnificence of you. If I want to know love, if I want to know God, if I want to know the source of all creation, I just get to know you better because nothing speaks more eloquently of the love that creation is than your very existence. So I can pick up this book and read something like that and just feel the invitation to accept myself lovingly and warm embrace, etc. Other times I can pick this book up and go back and review the axioms, the axioms that are true. The first one shows up on the very fifth page of the book, and it says, you know what? The first axiom, if you want to grow exponentially in your spiritual path, just let this thought in. Just play with this thought for a bit. Nothing you experience is caused by anything outside of you. You experience only the effects of your own choice. Which means you're going to have to get out of your head and tune into your heart. Because the way of the heart is not the way of the intellect. You're going to have to quit trying to figure things out and you're going to have to go through life tuning into the little nudges that your heart and your gut give you. And then I can go through the other axioms and understand that I do not live any ordinary moments. And that once I say I want to go home, I want to, I want to know God, I want to embrace things, everything that happens can be seen as a stepping stone. I will not be abandoned. There are countless entities, energies, guides supporting me. And that all of these words are there to help me find the place within me where the presence of love dwells. That love that I think I'm after, that I'm, I'm looking for in my career or from somebody else. So I can start using those exercises that they give when they specifically say, here's an exercise. Take five minutes a day and do this. Or I can pick up this book and look for the questions. And I can spend some time just considering, deeply considering the questions. Honestly, at, a, at radically different, deeper levels of honesty. And that's where we find ourselves in Lesson 9. Look with innocence on what you value. And then... Here's a question. Where then have you drawn the line? Where is it that you have said, 
I will, I will allow neutrality to all of the events over here, but not over there. Just at new, deeper, radically honest levels, explore what you value and see what you've been taught by others and what you've grown into on your own where you're in judgment, which means you're in contraction, which means you're hiding from yourself your true nature as love. So this next section could be seen as a really deep exercise invitation. Look with innocence. Oh, my gosh. I had somebody earlier in a session today, and she was saying, and I should have hung up that phone, and I cut her off, and I said, please, we don't have a time machine. You can't go back and undo what you did. So here's a tool you can use. When you catch yourself beating yourself up saying, I should have ended this call earlier, the tool you can use is to say, oh, I feel myself judging. I feel the tightness and tension within me. Here's the tool I will use. I will take a breath and soften, and I will practice in this moment valuing forgiveness, dismantling of judgment, dismantling of false perceptions, negative perceptions, dismantling the pattern within me of beating myself up, saying, oh, I should have done X, Y, or Z differently. Breathing, softening, choosing for love and acceptance and surrender rather than choosing for judgment and contraction and resentment and bitterness. Whether it's resentment and bitterness toward myself or toward somebody else makes no difference. It creates the same constriction and contraction in my energy system. So I can look on this as an invitation to dive deeply into what is it that I'm doing that's communicating to myself and the world around me what I truly value. Because whatever I'm doing is what I value. In that absolute sense. So the text goes on and it asks us to consider some of the options and the ways that we value some things over others and it reads if my friends divorce or separate well okay I'll see that as neutral but if my spouse leaves me that is not neutral now if my friend's father leaves three million dollars to his children that's fine that's a neutral event however if my father leaves three million dollars to charity and leaves me out of the picture that is not a neutral event. If the streams in another country, if the rivers and lakes in another country on the other side of the world from where I am become polluted because the consciousness of a community allowed a factory to be built without any safeguards, well, it's on the other side of the world, so it's a neutral event. But boy, if they build a factory like that in my backyard, it is no longer neutral. I just flashed on the 
the documentary from National Geographic about climbing the redwoods and how in the 90s they were they had activists out there climbing up in trees and and literally living in the trees staying up there for weeks having food hoisted up to them just because the logging companies wouldn't risk the human life by cutting these trees down. So these people were putting their lives on the line to try and save these redwood trees and save stands of old-growth forest from clear-cutting. And I remember, because I used to live out there into the um, for about five years in the late 70s, into the early 80s, 1980. And I had tremendous reverence for those trees and those mountains, and I saw some areas of clear-cutting and how devastating it was. So I remember having great empathy for these people who were fighting to save these trees, and I remember coming back to the Midwest to start studying for graduate school and having people mocking these ecologically-minded people, these environmentalists, and scorning them and saying how crazy they are and it's it's just a, a tree and a new one will grow and, you know, the logging companies need to make money. And, and it's just, I remember. I had one set of values about that and I was living with people who had a completely different set of values about that. And both of us, going against what these deeper spiritual teachings would have us do, both of us were creating a poison within our system. Both of us were creating anger and bitterness and resentment and trying to point it outside of ourselves, but getting the full force of that negativity within ourselves. So the text here goes on and says, it is always wise to look lovingly to see where you have drawn the line to see what you will look upon as neutral and what you cling to as being filled with meaning and value that you think is unquestionable. For when you do that, that's where you will find what requires forgiveness within you. Again, forgiveness is the dismantling of False judgment, false perception, negativity, any kind of judgment, any kind of delineation or separation. Forgiveness is the dismantling of judgment. Now, we've shared with you that mastery is a state of fearlessness. When you place value upon something and then you become adamant that that value exists in the event or the object outside of you, you have just secured your place in fear. Think about that. The moment you place a value on someone or something and then you become adamant that that value exists in that event or object outside of you, you have secured your place in fear. And in that moment, fearlessness is as far from you as the East is from the West. Just think about that. This is so opposite 
of what we were trained to in the Western mind. This takes a little playing and massaging and breathing and softening and letting yourself try to feel the truth of this dynamic that exists in our thoughts when we place a value on something. This is like Einstein saying, look, everything is energy. What we've heretofore called energy is, or, or matter is energy. It's energy that has been so lowered in its vibration so as to be perceptible to the senses, there is no matter. And what we do is we create a prison for ourselves by holding a special value for certain people and things closest to us. And the only way out of that prison is to extend that appreciation, fondness, that value equally to all people and all of creation. Otherwise, we are creating a belief that the value lies outside of us, and if we lose that object or that person and don't have the access we want to it when we want it, then we generate fear because we think that person, place, or thing being what it is, acting as it does, is what's causing our good feeling, our joy or, or the awareness of love within us. And as soon as we create that dynamic within our minds, now we've created the possibility that we might lose that because it's something outside of us, and there's the birth of fear. In the dream of separation, within that moment the dream begins, fear is born. So look well then, the text goes on and says, look well then to see where you've placed a value and instead insisted that that value be unshakable. How many times in each of your days do you say, oh boy, if my dog ever died, I wouldn't be able to take it. That would just be the end of me. Or... If the banks collapse, oh, God, I wouldn't be able to take that. This stuff is so pervasive in our culture. I literally had a session with somebody yesterday, and this is a woman in, in her mid-50s who is saying to me, she thinks that she's not going to be able to keep on going if her mother dies or when her mother dies. It's the very thing we have here. And most people that you say that kind of thing to, they just agree with you or they shrug and say, oh, boy, I get it. You know, I understand. Our culture has taught us to believe that we are small, that we are vulnerable, that we are like leaves blown around on the wind. And when these outside events happen, they create our emotions. So... This section of this chapter is inviting us to look at that process that we are choosing, we're creating within ourselves, and just understand it more deeply. Where, and do this without beating yourself up. Do this with total innocence. Do this with childlike curiosity. Wow, 
I really have been having thoughts like, you know, if I went home and, and somebody had broken into my house or my house burned down. The other day I was driving around the town I live in, and there's on yet another house that's clearly been affected by fire. The outside is boarded up. You can see the effects of the fire and the smoke discoloring the siding. And right there in the middle of a series of homes, I thought, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't realize. That's very close to my office. I'm, I haven't driven down this road in a while, but, boy, and then I start to have a thought. I wonder how I would respond if a fire happened at my house, if the things that I value were gone up in smoke or melted or destroyed by the fire and water or the fire and the, or the water and the smoke of um the fire department trying to keep the building from burning down. This section is asking us to take a deeper look at that. Understand the dynamic and the process and do it without beating ourselves up, without saying, oh, how horrible. I'm supposed to be a spiritual person. I guess I need to start giving away my valuables so that I I don't get stuck in this loop of fear. No. That's not what's being called for here. What's being called for here is just looking at it, seeing it just as it is, fully, freely, with total innocence and childlike curiosity. The text here goes on and warns us to be careful about what we decree. It says, look to see where you are emotionally enmeshed with the value you have placed on anything or anyone. Any relationship whatsoever, whether it be the relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your body, the relationship with your cat or dog, the relationship with your bank account, the relationship with your government, Look at all your relationships. Tuesday, we had the support group. And there were people who were just ramping up with their words and therefore their thoughts and therefore their emotions around, oh my gosh, I don't think I could survive if this person had another four years in the White House. Literally, exactly what this book is talking about, it is so pervasive in our culture that we we have these conversations going in our own head or, or in people around us, and we just we accept it as though it's normal, it's common, it's healthy, it's 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 insane. Of course, those people will survive whoever gets put in the White House next. The pain, the suffering, the agony, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment that they generate, when their mind is telling them that outside event is causing their upset, that will be quite painful. That could be very disruptive. That might be the the energy that they use to shut themselves down so they are not very productive during that four-year period if that comes to pass. And yet, there's nothing about that outside event that's creating any of those energies in them. 
That's what this section is calling us to, paying attention to where we have placed value outside of ourselves. Be very careful what you decree. Look to see where you have emotionally invested yourself with the value you've placed upon anything or anyone, any relationship whatsoever, whether it be the relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your body, the relationship with your cat or dog, the relationship with your political party, the relationship with your bank account, the relationship with your news outlet, the relationship with your government. Look at all of your relationships innocently with childlike curiosity. The text goes on and says, for you have made them what they are. Where can freedom be experienced except within a consciousness that has learned how to transcend the contradiction of fear? I've said this a number of times in talks I've given to different churches, especially if they ask me to talk around the Fourth of July holiday, and I'll talk about this is a holiday to celebrate our independence and our liberty and our freedom. And I'll say, how many people here are really glad that you live in the United States and home of the uh, free and land of the brave and all that good stuff? And they say, yeah, yes, yes, yes. They raise their hands, and I say, now let me ask you a question: How can you ever be free? when you believe that people and things outside of you create and maintain your emotions. Just let that in. You have made your emotional states what they are. There's a mechanism within you that even if you didn't know it was there, has always been there. And so if you gain awareness of it and practice the vigilant observation of it, you can change the experience you're creating for you in your life. All of these people, places, and things are simply neutral events. All events are neutral. The text goes on and reads, every web of relationship comes to you perfectly neutral. You decree it by naming it and defining it. When one comes to you in anger and you react, recognize that you first decided that they are angry. And then in that moment, you have brought forth within your own mind and experience all of the associations you have ever decided to value concerning anger and what anger means and how you should respond to anger, and whether or not it's scary, or whether or not it's empowering. In the moment that you label someone else as being angry, that is brought into your mind, into your body's experience, instantaneously. The text goes on and says, yet in that very moment, you hold the power to witness this field of energy circulating through the body and mind and speech of another and to see it as simply a dance of energy, a mystery arising from some unseen source and web of relationships. You could look upon it with curiosity and with wonder and define it differently. 
I just finished interviewing Bill Sturley, the author of the book, The Emotional Sobriety Solution. And at the heart of this book, he says, look, we generate our negative emotions whenever we believe we have a need that's not getting met. So you can help yourself and you can help others by just knowing this truth, knowing that when there's a negative emotion, that means the person experiencing the negative emotion is in the moment believing they have a need that's not getting met. And they don't know how to observe directly around them, and they don't know how to request rather than demand. And that's why it's coming out as anger or violence or judgment. And just describing that can start to diffuse because it helps people understand, oh, yeah, I'm actually creating this. I'm generating this emotional experience because I'm experiencing myself as having this need that's not getting met. And that's why that's connected to this emotion. And instantly, a defusing of energies takes place. In that very moment, this last paragraph reads, you hold the power to witness this field of energy circulating throughout the body. Your body or somebody else's? Your mind or somebody else's mind? Your speech or somebody else's speech? And just to see it as a dance of energy, a mystery arising from some unseen source and web of relationships. You could look upon it with curiosity and with wonder if you defined it differently. So later in his book, he talks about, Bill Sterling talks about, there are the four horsemen of the communication apocalypse. What are the four horsemen? Defensiveness. How often do we interpret someone as responding defensively? How often do we respond defensively? It's absolutely common. One of them, one pattern is we get defensive. Another pattern is we get critical. That's another four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse. First, what happens most often is people get defensive. If that doesn't work, they'll turn critical. If that doesn't work, they'll turn into this disgust, right? They'll, they'll look with contempt upon the other person, and they'll find a way to express contempt. And the fourth horseman of the apocalypse of communication is withdrawal or stonewalling. So the way of mastery says, look, any time that you're experiencing something coming out of somebody as anger or as defensiveness or as contempt or criticism or stonewalling and withdrawal, you could choose to back up and say, wow, with innocence and curiosity, what is this dance of energy coming out of this person? I wonder what needs they might feel that aren't getting met for them. I wonder how they may be in pain 
fear or sadness that they can't express differently. My experience has been that the more I do that, the more options I see for extending compassion, which is what Bill Sturley suggests in his book, and communicate about the process underlying whatever the content is that's coming out of the person's mouth, shining a spotlight on their pain, fear, and sadness with compassion by your side. And you will be able to see and experience these energies differently. The text goes on and reads, This is true for all things that arise. Even the great diseases that seem to threaten life and the life of the body can be looked upon with complete neutrality. But if you define them in a specific way, you will call to yourself the fear of the event, which comes with all of the associations that you've learned from the world and from your own life experiences. So the message of this lesson is simple. And it's very important. It builds on all that we've shared with you previously. You are a creator, and you cannot help but create. So the question becomes, what will you create in each moment? Since all events are neutral, you're going to create your experience of these events. What are you going to value, pour your mind energy into, and therefore create as your own experience, and therefore communicate to others as what you value. The text reads, far beyond the great thrill of the magic of creating events or objects in a third-dimensional reality, far beyond that are the qualities that you create, such as peace, unlimitedness, forgiveness, compassion, and wisdom. These, too, are creations. Compassion does not exist floating around in the universe until you manifest it and cultivate it within your own awareness. Christ consciousness cannot be said to truly exist for you until you create it within yourself. Your union with your creator does not even exist for you until you decide to open to the lived experience of it. Much as a food you've never tasted might well not exist for you until you journey to that country, purchase it, and place it in the body. Or in your day and age, you go to the grocery store and find the gourmet international section and purchase it and put it in your body. Nothing can be said to exist for you until you have tasted the lived experience of it. So when you hear talk about enlightenment, when you hear talk about union with the creator, when you hear talk about unconditional love, please stop nodding your head and thinking you know what these things are. Instead, turn your attention within. Do you abide in a lived experience of these things? Question that for yourself, and immediately you will know the answer. If your answer is no, no, I, I hear talk about enlightenment, 
and I get little glimpses of it here and there, but I don't really know what it is because I'm not feeling it completely in my lived experience. If that's your response, right away you will know there's something you have valued more than enlightenment. Something that you have valued that you are insisting remains in place in your consciousness other than enlightenment, other than peace, other than unlimitedness, other than unconditional love. You might ask, what is it? And this book says, search it out, find it, get radically honest with yourself about what you truly value. Again, that's the, the title of this section is Look with Innocence on What You Value. And get as radically honest with yourself as you can, and you will start to see what it is that you're valuing above enlightenment, above peace, above unconditional love. And that's our invitation. Understanding that whatever we're pouring our mind energy into is literally the thing we're valuing. I said earlier, if I'm a, an environmentalist and I choose to pour my mind energy into thoughts of how I hate loggers and I hate you know, people who are greedy to the point where they're destroying the environment, in that moment... I'm using my mind, my body, my energy system to communicate that I value judgment and I value anger and I value bitterness and resentment above all else. As I wake up to that, since as this work has already told us, I'm always going to be creating. I have the perfect freedom to continue to create all of those negative emotional states. But also, once I've awakened to this, I also have the capacity in that next moment to create the experience of my true nature as love, as infinitely connected with my source, as someone, as an entity, as a consciousness that can choose to teach only love, choose to value only my loving thoughts, choose to share only my loving thoughts. So that's all I'm going to read for today. We have about 10 minutes to have questions or comments if anybody wants to chime in or add a little refinement for themselves or 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1 on your phone. And we can have a conversation. Area code 828. Are you in the Hi. air? Yeah. Hi, Dr. Tim. It's Amanda. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have been so very much appreciating your reading and, and your comments, and every day I'd like to call in and say thank you for doing that, but I also don't want to interrupt, so I just, I'll just say it all right now. 
Um, and I do need some help and some direction with a recurring problem that I'm having that <clears throat> um, I am so wonderfully creating for myself, except it doesn't feel wonderful. So I'd like to change my behavior and my thoughts and my feelings with it. And what it, uh, the example that came up for me was uh, a dental appointment that I had the other day. And I knew that I trust the people that I'm working with. I know they're very skilled. Uh, I knew that it was only two little cavities, very small, wouldn't take very long. And even though I knew that and believe it, I was still scaring myself and bringing up fear based upon this old, old, old experiences that I had when I was a kid at a dental office. <clears throat> and and I just uh, and I've I've done work on that in one way or another. Now, obviously, I need more, uh, and so I'd like to get any direction that you might have for how to approach this right now. Well, you know, with the the limited time we have, the the, the best what I would do if I were in your shoes is I would go to YouTube and I would find Brad Yates, and I would find a a topic related to fear or dentistry or whatever, because he's probably got uh, literally a, a, a video where he talks about fear of the dentist or whatever. He's got so many videos. But even if you mm-hmm. can't find one related to a dentist, one related to fear, and and watch yeah. it all the way through so that you see what it is and you know that yeah. it resonates with you, the words he's using, etc. Then I would get myself in a position where I do a little visualization or meditation, whatever you want to call it, and I visualize myself as that younger self who had whatever age you were when you had this fearful or difficult situation with a dentist. And then I would spend some time visualizing that and then turning on that I'm that younger child and I'm being coached by my adult self, and maybe my adult self is in the room tapping on me as the subject and playing the Brad Yates tape so that I can say the words or hear the words that Brad Yates would coach me to say to dismantle fear or accept the fear or allow the fear and move through it. And I would be visualizing tapping on my younger self as that's happening. Mm-hmm. And I would spend mm-hmm. time doing that as long as it felt good and it felt like energy was moving rather than staying stuck. I am definitely very inclined to think that that is a great idea. Um, yeah, especially the tapping on my younger self. Um it's, a, it's like reaching back into history in a way that's the way I'm experiencing it. Thank you. I think that's a great, uh, a great idea. And I will go ahead and do that. Um, okay. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I just, uh, we don't, we don't mention it a lot here, but you know, it's, it's a powerful tool. Uh, I, I literally used it last night 
in the uh, support group. I did a worksheet, and then people were quiet, and I was processing, and I just felt like, well, I don't really know what to say to them, or, and I was feeling all of this energy. So then I thought, you know, if I were alone, what I'd be doing is I'd be doing some, excuse me, stifling a sneeze. I'd be doing some rounds of tapping. So then I thought, well, okay, they're not saying anything, so I just started tapping and let them tap along if they want to or just watch it. But yeah. it was just a nice reminder for me that, even though it's not one of the primary tools that Dr. Michael Rice teaches, it's certainly compatible with the idea of just breathing, softening, feeling the energy that's coming up, and letting it go through you. It's just like the worksheet process. It's just delineating what your mind is doing with all of its busyness and then put it aside and cancel it and ask something else to be available. Right. I, and I think, and I just wrote down feeling because that is so important to go back to the feeling itself. The feeling I had the other day when I was approaching the dental office and the feelings I had as a kid and all of the years in between, you know, regarding dental work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have a few more minutes. Um, I'd like to do a little testimonial about what you were reading just a little while ago. Um, And I'm going to go back to a call I made for help a year or two ago when I was sitting in a a situation with other people in a waiting room, and they were talking about politics that I particularly disagree with. And I... um, was very, very much upset that I was not able to reach a place of love concerning these people within myself. I wasn't interacting with them or talking or intending to talk. I just wanted to feel love for them, and I couldn't. And you so rightly pointed out when I chatted with you about it that I had to take a look at how very much I was holding on to the importance of my own beliefs and that it was actually that uh, that I was using to cause my upset with them. And, and boy, that really worked um, beautifully to realize, okay, this was at the bottom of my, my upset with them. And until I release my attachment to being right and having my beliefs be right and accepted by others. Even if not, I'm not going to talk to them. (laughs) But the overall uh, feeling and belief that I had was that it's important that everyone should understand what I understand. (laughs) So, um, So everything that you were reading just a little bit ago was so, so, is so true. And, um, Thanks again for that that leadership that day. Yeah. You're very welcome and deserving, and thanks for the testimonial. I'm glad it's worked for you, and I hope you find other ways, other situations, other judgments that you can become aware of and see the same thing about them. Because it doesn't matter what I'm judging, mm-hmm. what's happening is the same thing within me. I'm causing constriction, contraction. I'm separating mm-hmm. my flow of, myself from the flow of life, and... Um, and I'm going to create some suffering. 
You are so, so right. Yeah, I've been really watching judgment, my personal judgment of myself and judgment of other people. And, um, yeah, that's that's been high up on my agenda of uh, awarenesses. Yeah, so thank you again, Dr. Tim. Thanks so much for your show. You're welcome. Thank you for your help. Mm-hmm. Thanks for you the too. call. Appreciate it. Blessings. Mm. I will mute you so you can listen to the second hour. Our second hour is going to be Aramaicisms, Part 1. It uh, goes along with what Michael's reading from the Enlightenment book that he's just begun digging into. And he'll get into more when he returns. And I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. So welcome, everybody, to Aramaicisms. And our topic tonight is going to be the discerning of the truth of the endangered Aramaic thought system. We're going to look into that thought system that sourced at least six of the world's major religions. And we're going to work toward understanding, in particular, the first century meanings of its words. I'd like to introduce uh, Aramaic scholar Dale Allen Hoffman, who, uh, as a young man at the age of 15, showed up at our teaching center curious, wanting to know. And he tapped into the Kabor's manuscript in the Aramaic, and uh, the rest is history. He's becoming one of the most uh, renowned practical scholars on the planet. I say practical because there are many scholars who live in their heads, have never had an experience of what actual spirituality is, what the actual presence of love is that is the purpose of these ancient Aramaic teachings, but live in their heads and talk about those things where Dale travels the globe and teaches people how to have that experience. So Dale, I'm delighted to be here on the stage with you. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, uh, Michael's introducing me so that I can introduce him. And then are you going to introduce me again? or I know, we'll just go for okay. one. <laughs> uh, first, let me say welcome. I normally, anybody who's ever been to one of my events before, we always begin with toning in prayer. And uh, I'm actually going to sidestep that, step that a little bit. We're going to do the introductions first. We'll get to the toning in prayer part. Um, yeah, I showed up at Heartland in 1995. Just, I want to make this as brief as I can. It was when I was seven years old that I took out, grew up in the Methodist church, which I'm happy about because that means I didn't have a lot of fireballs thrown in my face, so I didn't have a lot of things I had to pull out later on. But uh, it was when I was seven years old that I sat down on my grandmother's living room floor on a carpet and I laid out five different Bibles. And I opened up to the Beatitudes, which was my favorite thing in the world, from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthai, and Aramaic. And I compared them to each other. And I didn't do it because I was trying to learn something. I was just interested. Like, how different is this going to be? The, the freakish thing was that two of them were com- nothing like the others, and these three were basically different from each other. It was just this, this weird thing, nothing, and I don't just mean slight variations, I mean none of them really lined up with the other. Then when I was 14, that's when I would sit down and open up to the red words of Jesus in the Bible and I would write down a couple of the lines and riff on that for line after line after line and I'd write eight to ten pages that nobody ever read because I didn't write it because somebody needed to read it. I read or wrote those because I had to. And then when I was 21, I start hearing more about, I start getting more into Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, and I kept hearing about this uh, guy, 
As a matter of fact, I was in a Course in Miracles group, study group down in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, and somebody said to me, uh, Michael Rice is coming to town. I'm like, oh, really? Good. Okay. They're like, he does the Aramaic. And I'm like, what, like Macarena or something does the Aramaic. <laughs> Funny thing that at that age, as deep as I was into the Bible, I didn't know what Aramaic was. And I'm like, well, what's Aramaic? And they're like, well, that's the language Jesus spoke. And I went, hmm, he didn't speak English? And everybody laughing at me, ha, ah! people don't think about that, believe it or not. Uh, and then I said Arabic, right? And they're like, no, Aramaic. And I went, aromatic? And they're like, yeah, it means he smells really good. So anyway, here I end up at, in Clearwater, Florida at a workshop called Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And uh, literally by the first break, I was like literally sitting on my hands. My eyes are gushing tears. My heart's beating out of my chest. I'm laughing. I'm crying. And I walked up to him, and I still remember that look that he gives, that sort of that, he gave me the look. It was a different kind of a look. And he said, what's happening? He said, it looks like I could peel you off the ceiling right now. And I said, whatever you've got, I want it all. And I ended up at Heartland. And what happened at Heartland is I didn't get deep into the actual language. That came later. What I got deep into was the experience. And I got deep into the actual Aramaic process of forgiveness uh, that's been so misunderstood in the last 2,000 years. You ever play Pass the Secret? You know, you're in kindergarten, and on this end, it's like the boy in the green shirt fell into a hole, and over here, the elephant walked sideways while he was... What, it, it makes no sense to what's over here. Imagine that in 2,000 years. So I got really deep into that, and then from there, I started getting really deep into the language itself, into the texts themselves, and translations, and I'll talk a little bit later about things like x-ray copies of Bibles, where you can actually see if ink soaked through from the other side of the page and lands in just the right spot to change either the phonetic marking or the letter itself, which can change the meaning completely. Yeah, it happens more than you'd realize. Um, but the thing that happened in 1995 was I got the base. My heart was opened up by what Michael was teaching, mostly because of the actual forgiveness process, which, of course, we'll probably touch on, I'm sure, in the next I'm few sure nights. we will. Uh, but it changed everything for me. And I've seen over the last 20 years, I've seen a lot of people, I've seen Michael's work, he won't say it, I'll say it, borrowed by a lot of people and then twisted because they didn't really put it into practice and understand it. And then they'll kind of repackage it in a different variety that's more palatable for the masses. Um, when it comes to integrity, I know of no person who's out there teaching that it, number one, walks it more than him or has the integrity and will literally take responsibility right in the present moment for anything that he, on some level, didn't realize you know, was happening, he'll eat it right there in front of you. So that's a huge, 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 uh, I want to say mentor, but it's like we're brothers, and it's like we're, there's just, it's this egoless relationship. So I want to say thank you for being here, and I'm going to uh, turn it back to him. And uh, I think you should say a little bit about your background first and then talk about how crazy the stuff I've done over the years is or something. Cool. I was thinking that the first time you came to Heartland, you were about 15. It was I know. You, you, I, no, no, I was, uh, yeah, 20, okay. 22, actually, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you always say that. So. I do. I always say that. It's I lied. What can I say? You'll forgive it someday, but... No. <laughs> 
Yes, sir. So, let's set the stage. You are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. And we set up a workshop series and we hear from this gentleman in Russia who wants to come to the workshop series. And we know you've got an extra room in your house, so we ask if you would mind picking this person up at the airport, or the airport translating for them, and housing them, and then taking them back to the airport at the end of the week. And you're just delighted to have that opportunity. And at the end of the week, you know, by the time the week is out, we've had dinner a couple of times, we went out for lunch with this fellow, we had a great time, just a, a wonderful man. And so at the end of the week, I want him to know, I don't speak any Russian, I want him to know what I think of him, and so I ask if you would tell him that I think that he's really cool. And you say, okay, and you turn to him in Russian, and you say, Michael thinks you've got a low body temperature. <laughs> now, you translated my words perfectly, but you obviously didn't say a word about what I meant. In most circles, where what is purported to be the teachings of the man named Yeshua, if he walked into those circles and listened to it, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. Because Greek ideas have supplanted his original first century Aramaic thought system. And the Aramaic language is a very idiomatic language. And imagine, let, let's take a, a little statement with a couple of idioms in it that you'll understand perfectly because they're idioms in use today in English. But imagine that we're going to put them in a time capsule and 2,000 years from now, somebody who speaks English is going to unwrap them. We're not going to go through three, four, five languages, cultures, or anything. We're just going to take this statement and imagine somebody 2,000 years from now opening and reading this description of this gentleman's day. And so the description goes like this. I went to the office this morning and found myself in a pickle with my boss. And she canned me. I went to my desk to clean it out. I needed to go to the can. I came back, finished cleaning out my desk, went home. My wife was in the kitchen canning. And she said, help me if you can. And I said, I can't. Now, you know exactly what I just said. But imagine somebody 2,000 years from now, where who knows what kind of word changes have taken place. Imagine what kind of mindset it's going to take to understand what I just said. We have a friend out in California, and he oftentimes houses foreign students. And he had a young Chinese student who came and lived in his home while he was going to school. And this normally happy person came home from school one day all in an upset, like so visibly upset that my friend Donald said to him, what's, what's going on for you? He said, whoa, very bad day at school. And, and Donald said, well, what happened? You seem to have been having such a great time in school. He said, at school they called me a very bad name. And Donald said, well, what did they call you? He said, I looked it up in the dictionary. They, they called me a very bad name. They said I was a cold cowboy. 
Donald looked at him, it's like, you know, it's not exactly the vernacular of this language. So, he, well, what exactly did they say to you? They said I was a cool dude. And I looked it up in the dictionary, and to him, it wasn't a very nice thing to be called a cold cowboy. The Aramaic language is rife with these kinds of problems and challenges. And, and the thought system in Aramaic, and that's why we're talking about restoring an endangered thought system, the thought system in Aramaic is a complete thought system that includes everything you could possibly experience through your body-mind unit, how to make sure that it stays on track and that you stay in high-level wellness. And that thought system is endangered by a thought system based in hostility and fear. If you've ever held a newborn child, and Jeannie and I have asked the question, how many have ever held a newborn child, and asked people just to describe the essence in the newborn, it's a question we've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe. And everybody who describes the essence of their newborn uses a word that reflects some variation on the theme of love. Why? Because everybody knows what human life is. Then we come into the culture and the culture starts to put its thumbprints on us. And once we are struck with those thumbprints, we tend to lose awareness of the experience of ourselves as this awesome active presence of love and the cellular effect of that experience, which is bliss and ecstasy. The child comes in experiencing that and we're designed to live in that. And the culture with its thumbprints changes the thought system from one that supports living in that state to one based in a different state. The second question that Jeannie will usually ask at the opening of the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop is how many have ever done something they regret? And again, having asked tens of tens of thousands of people that question, everybody's answer is some variation on the theme of hostility or fear. The language and the thought system of hostility and fear is replacing the language and the thought system and the support system for living as human beings, for living as love. It's as though human life is almost gone from the planet. And what we're looking to do is to solidify and restore an understanding of that first century Aramaic thought system that supports us really truly experiencing living in our physiology in ecstasy and bliss, 24-7, 365, whatever's going on in our world. What we feel from is designed to come from being, the state of a human life, who we are. And we get converted, we get shifted out of that into a thought system based in hostility or fear. And once we plug into that, then our minds tend to work and produce everything it produces in that hostility and fear system, which is insane compared to the system based in human life. I define insanity as a human form without the active presence of love in it. If you go back 2,000 years ago, you hear this man, Yeshua, saying, my words are your perfect life. You'll notice he doesn't say, I am. He says, my words are. Vladimir Lenin says, you can destroy a culture by doing one simple thing. All you have to do is change the meaning of its words. Well, how could you destroy a culture by changing the meaning of words? Culture is transferred 
from generation to generation through words and thought. If you change the thought behind words that are important to living as love, then you lose the ability to live as you're designed to live. We are here to convert everybody on the planet, not into anyone's church. That's the non-being mind's cheap copy of conversion. Conversion is bringing each of us back to a love-based thought system, a love-based mind that works as it was designed to work. You can go back into the 6th century, and there was a man named Rabelais. He was a bishop. And Rabelais decided he knew how it should work. Rabelais is the root word for our idiom today of a rabble-rouser. That's the kind of mind this guy had. He went everywhere he could and destroyed every Aramaic writing he could find, every Aramaic scripture, and replaced it with his own translations. And what we're looking to do is to reestablish the Aramaic thought system and come back to the truth of who we are. We're going to get into some wild stuff tonight. Um, one of the, uh, there's a base I'd like to set. Actually, there's a quote I have. This is from a guy that's been a huge inspiration to me, and I think that there's certain people that, I think people that are out there teaching this guy's teachings and sort of twisting those a bit too. His name's Ernest Holmes. Anybody ever heard of him before? He said, if the philosophy of Christianity were lived, were lived, wars would cease, unhappiness would cease, economic problems would be solved, poverty would be wiped from the face of the earth, and man's inhumanity to man would be transmuted into a spirit of mutual helpfulness. And here's the base that I'd like to lay before we go forward. But we're going to talk a bit more about this either later tonight or tomorrow. But everybody, I talked about those Beatitudes. I've had this relationship with the Beatitudes since I was about five years old. Uh, everybody know what the Beatitudes are? Maybe, maybe not. Anybody know what the third Beatitude is? It's one of the questions I get asked the most. Anybody know their Beatitudes? This is from the Sermon on the Mount, first public teaching of Yeshua. The, okay, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. They're the blessed are statements. We're going to get to those a little bit later. But the third one says, blessed are the meek. Um, even though it's a subject for later in the evening, I wanted to start with this base, at least for me. Uh, first of all, it doesn't translate as blessed are the doormats. Okay? That word, the best word that I can give you in English for this, because this to me is one of the absolute bedrocks of being able to, to be open to learn, the best word I can give you in English is humility. Now, humility comes from the Latin word humus, which isn't a Middle Eastern chickpea dip that's like great with pita breads and carrots and stuff. That's hummus. Humus. Anybody know what humus means? What's humus? Any gardeners? Soil. It's, that, it's the, the, the earthy, open, it, it's the earthy, open soil that has those beautiful, fertile roots and water can flow very much through it. Humus literally is a Latin root that means an open relationship with the earth, open, flowing. From the Tao Te Ching where it says the Tao is like a river flowing home to the sea. It also says in the Tao that there's nothing more powerful yet yielding than water. Okay? Now, the reason I say this is because one of the things that we definitely, in his decades and my decades of study, 
one of the things we don't see a lot of is humility. What we do see a lot of is, I know what I'm talking about and I'm the expert, whatever that may be. Um, it's intriguing. You, you can mark my words on this. I would say film it and you know, put it somewhere, but that's happening anyway. The people that are considered biblical experts today, okay, 2015, especially in terms of Christianity, over the next two decades, many of them are going to be turned on their heads and the people that are looked at as the disturbing elements out on the fringe who are talking about things that other people label conspiracy theories, etc., are all of a sudden going to be pulled into the center of the room and people are going to honor and say, guess what? You were right. And this means people like Bart Ehrman, Elaine Peggles, uh, James Tabor. There's just so many names I can pull out of the hat. Lots of people that are... Uh, people are labeling them as being just trying to like be troublemakers or something. And here's the thing. Um, just because a theology or a belief system, BS, is predominant and widely spread and everybody seems to buy into it, doesn't mean that's what's correct. Okay? And there's one thing that can become danger and that's fundamentalism. Because what fundamentalism can masquerade as is keeping a truth alive in its original intention. The danger in that is all it needs is a slight shift here and then a slight shift here and then a slight alteration here and a slight alteration here. Remember, past the secret. And you go several thousand years down the line and people think they're getting what's real, but that's not necessarily what they're getting. And here's the other thing. When you're in the fences of theology, there's a danger in that because you're told, look, if you stay in this fence, you're safe, you are in the family, you are in our social club, we will support you, we will love you. If something happens, if you're starving, we'll come feed you. But don't go outside of the fence. What happens when you go outside of the fence? Intriguingly, I started with a guy that was already outside of the fence, which I'm happy about because here's the thing. I started going to lots of conventions, started going very deep into like symposiums that would last a week on ancient languages. And I used to notice, I started noticing after a while that the people that screamed the loudest and their eyes would bulge the furthest out of their head like a Simpsons cartoon were the ones that usually won the arguments. Interesting thing, the one that didn't give up. And that's when I started studying, you know, lots of different things that tied right in with Aramaic, like the way that uh, you can actually go and go to a theological seminary, some kind of biblical-based academy, and get one sentence mentioning that, oh, by the way, the Jesus guy spoke Aramaic, and okay, back to the Greek thing now. And I had issues with this, and I started digging in. Why would this happen? Why would this happen? And I started studying guys like Irenaeus. That was the guy that... Uh, is responsible for, as an example, changing the gospel of the beloved disciple, which was about a woman, into the gospel of John, which is about a man. Um, he's the guy that oversaw the forgeries of a lot of the Pauline letters that are still in the Bible today. Um, looked in Constantine. And I saw that an original Aramaic thought system that was broken down and broken down and broken down and twisted and manipulated and let's bring in some Egyptian mythology which is basically the entire history of the Jesus lifetime and you start looking at all these things and you start learning what's actually real anymore and that's when I started to realize that truth is not something I'm going to find on a page it's not something in the letters truth is a direct experience there's a real danger in 
thinking that the concepts in your mind that you're projecting on letters on the page are what's right, as opposed to the realization that what you are looking for is what is looking, in the words of St. Francis of Assisi. And that's what I got from Michael's work. That's what I got from actually doing the breath work and doing the forgiveness process and realizing that Yeshua wasn't telling us to go out there and add stuff in. He was actually showing us how to take things off. And this actually, Michael was speaking of that joy and that ecstasy. One of the, probably one of the most misunderstood teachings that came out of Yeshua's mouth has to do with prayer. Do you want to start that off? Or? Sure, yeah. Well, you look at that word and you hear the disciples asking Yeshua, teach us to pray. Now, let's imagine that I'm a voice teacher. And you said to me, Michael, teach me to sing. Would I be teaching you to sing if I sang you a song? Obviously not. What would I do? I'd give you some instructions for how to sing. Many people are shocked to realize that what the world has called the Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer. It's a set of instructions for how to pray. And in Aramaic, what does the word prayer mean? Well, it's kind of a shock for most people in the West until they start to understand it. But the word means, more closely, to set a trap for God. Which the average mind goes, well, what does that mean, to set a trap for God? Well, if you think about your television set and you've got an antenna on the roof and you're tuned to channel 2, if your antenna is shaped properly and oriented correctly, then your antenna is a trap for channel 2, feeds a good signal in, and you get a clear picture and clear sound. If someone goes up and bends the arms on the antenna, turns it backward, or drives into the parking lot with a car, car that's poorly tuned, then you're not going to have a very good trap or device to bring that signal in. So in Aramaic, there's the recognition that this physiological device is designed to capture the live, active presence of love and bring it into the world. What is God? God is love. So when we are properly attuned and aligned, and the word that's been translated as soul can also be properly translated as a tuning mechanism, when we're attuned, then there is this awesome active presence of love that sprays or radiates from us onto everyone. Anyone who walks the world in that modality is a walking field for healing humanity. And so what you find in the Aramaic Lord's Prayer is, here's how you attune and align yourself to be the space where love shows up. So it's a set of instructions. As I can remember three times, the third time I wrote the Beatitudes out, using the dictionary in the back of our publication, Kaburus, the Enlightenment book. And I was always taught that the, uh, the Beatitudes were this nice philosophy. And the third time I wrote it out longhand, we've got a first century dictionary in the back of that book, Enlightenment. The first time I wrote it out longhand, it was like, oh my God, this is an instruction set. This is a how-to. The so-called Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer, it's an instruction set for how to capture and reflect into the world the active presence of love, especially if you're facing what the world calls an enemy.
How do you do that? You know, there are lots of nice words that are said about, well, you should love your neighbor, but if you've got somebody who's full of rage and you tell them to love their neighbor, chances are they're going to end up in huge amounts of guilt because they have no clue how to love their neighbor and therefore when their rage, their fear, their sadness, their anger comes up, they've failed and they are dashed into the dirt and they buy the, the belief system that there's something wrong with them when the truth is nobody showed them how to do that. And if nobody shows us how to do something, how do we do it? The Lord's Prayer is a set of instructions for how to do that. The Beatitudes are a set of instructions for how to activate an unconscious neural structure that's designed to guide us to happiness and well-being. So we see instructions, and by and large, that's the piece that's been lost, because you can't understand, truly understand a set of instructions until you follow them. You can't talk about a set of instructions until you've truly experienced them. You can't describe the result of following a set of instructions until you follow them and experience the result. So we see lots of people, in fact, Yeshua talked about these people 2,000 years ago. He says, you put all these people to their work and you won't touch one bit of it yourself. And that, unfortunately, is what's happened with the ivory tower. I remember Dale sharing with me being at a conference and they're arguing over the meaning of words and Dale said, well, has anybody ever tried this? Put it Anybody into practice, maybe? Put this into actual practice? What <laughs> happened when you did that? They looked at me as if I had lobsters crawling out of my ears for about 20 seconds, and then they just looked back at each other and started arguing again as if I didn't even exist. So that was a good lesson. <laughs> yeah. So what we want to do is get down to the practical how-to and to understand what those first century meanings meant. Love is not something we do to each other. Love is a state of being. Think about the newborn. It's not something the newborn's doing, it's what the newborn is. When I ask you to tap into the experience of holding a newborn, notice you don't have to go to your head or your intellect to do that. You go back to the experience of that presence that was there. If I ask you that other question, how many have ever done something they regret? Notice you have to go into your head and think about this event and, oh, what did I do? What did I feel? This is all something that's happening in the head. And ultimately, in order to heal, the key tool will be the tool of forgiveness. And what it does is it empowers you to be out of your mind, to drop the mental games and get into the actual experience of yourself as this awesome active presence of love, living through a form that is attuned, that is a trap, that captures and gives a place for you to embody and express in the world. This physicist, Yeshua, 2,000 years ago said, a little leavening leavens the whole loaf. I think we're fairly safe in assuming he wasn't talking about bread. <laughs> what was he talking about? He was saying, if we can get enough human beings incarnated into human forms, then we're going to create a critical mass of love that is going to shift and heal every mind on the planet. And so that's what we're aiming to do, is to give people the tools and understand in context, in the first century, the instructions he was giving for how to experience yourself as this awesome active presence of love, 
regardless of what's going on in your world. And when you do that, you will naturally live in humility, and it is that, that fertile place, and it's an ability, it's a mental ability to see and cooperate with the highest and best in others. When you're in your hostility or fear-based mind, how many have ever had the experience of, you know, I heard, I, I just heard, it's about love, I got it, it's about love, and you went home to that person, you said, I got it, it's about love, and that's where I'm going to live forevermore, especially with you. And, and then that's what you did with that person, right? Until the next time they gave you the look. And what happened to your resolve to live is love? If nobody gave you the tool of forgiveness, you didn't know how to do it. Because that look resonated something out of your body's mind that was different than love. And when it comes up, like Goliath in the story of David and Goliath, it takes over. And your choice is rendered useless. And so, how do you actually embody and incarnate a human life in a human form? Just because someone has what looks like a human body does not mean there's human life in there. If you listen to Yeshua, he said, I come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly. He didn't say, I come to bring you fear, I come to bring you threat, I come to bring you suffering. He said, I come to bring you life. I come to teach you how to pray, how to incarnate as the active presence of love and extend that to all the world. And when we move into that space, everything changes. It's not a head game anymore. It's not an intellectual journey. Mm. See, I'm already writing things down. I knew it. as soon as we start going, I'm like, ooh, we didn't think of that one. Uh, there's a subject, and then I'm going to refocus back on, on the Lord's Prayer itself, which is this. You know, one of, the, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that when you sit in, and in English look at the words of Jesus, Jesus comes from the Greek word that means hail Zeus, in case you didn't know that. Um, ooh. Uh, intriguingly, when you sit and you look at it from an English perspective, a lot of people don't realize that the words that you're seeing on the page weren't actually there originally. Maybe you just, you know it on some level, but you're not really acknowledging it. One of those words that, uh, trying to think of, oh, I come to give you life and give it abundantly. The word life. Now let me say something here first. Um, it's an intriguing thing when I started really getting deep into Aramaic, because if I met ten different people, they would say the same words ten different ways. Their cops were chets, and there was just all these kinds of, kind of like going from Boston to where they parked the car to going down, you know, around here. I can't do Southern for some reason, even though I've been here for 12 years. I just can't. I can say y'all or all y'all. I think up to three is y'all. For three or, or four or more, it's all y'all. But um, I don't have the dialect in there. Intriguingly, though, looking at that, that phrase, I come to give you life and give it abundantly, that word life in Aramaic is chaya or chaya. Okay? In Jesus' language, chaya. There's a bunch of other words that, was trans that that word was translated as. Chaya is the word life. I come to give you life, give it abundantly. You ever heard like saved? You have to, have you, people ask me that sometimes. You know, some of the sort of, like what exists as American evangelical white Christianity today, number one, does not exist outside of this country unless an American took it there. Number two, it's only about three or four decades old, okay? The thought systems, the lingo, the words they use, it's very new. One of those things that I get asked is, have you been saved? Now let me ask you a question briefly here. Let's say that your kid is playing with a ball in the front yard and whatever, you're trimming the hedges, and 
there's a car going by 50, 50 miles an hour in a, in a 20 mile an hour zone and the child runs to grab the ball from the middle of the street and you run as fast as you can to grab the child and pull that child back. What did you just do? You saved them, right? What does save mean? What does it mean to save? Preserved life. Preserved life. You just preserved life. You just, a life, a life that appeared like it was about to end and you kept it going. Save is the word chaya in Aramaic. Resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. The word resurrection in Aramaic is the word chaya. There's a lot of words that theology was laid on top when it was the same word in so many different places. Another word would be amen, which is at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Amen. Amen. Uh, intriguingly, there's no eh sound in ancient Aramaic. There's no eh. So if you say amen, there is no sound in that language like that, okay? Now, intriguingly, amen, if you ever heard assuredly, assuredly I say to you, or verily, verily I say to you, that's actually the word amen. Interesting. It was, it was changed. Why was it changed? Who knows? Um, we're going to talk about a lot of words like that, but now I want to I focus for a few minutes just on the Lord's Prayer itself. Uh, we'll revisit the word Lord later, but I will say this just very briefly. Jesus was never called Lord. Jesus never called anything or anyone Lord. I can say that absolutely. You know why I know that as a fact, even though I wasn't there? Because the word Lord did not exist. Okay? Now, that word Lord that's translated from the Greek is kurios, which comes from kairos, which means essentially outside of time and space. Uh, it's a realization that would be a sister word of agape, which is essentially oneness with everything. Okay? Now, that word Lord in Aramaic sounds like this. Maria. Maria. We're going to come back to this sound a little bit later. Maria. Interesting. Did you know that? Jesus didn't say Lord. He said Maria. Later on, we'll talk about what that means, what the actual word means completely. But here we are. We've got something we're calling the Lord's Prayer. Does anybody know where the word Lord comes from? The English word. Really, that's basically it. It comes from feudalism. It comes from feudalism basically within the realm of the Church of England. Actually, even prior to the Church of England. We might get to King James at some point. Interesting fellow. But um, literally, it comes from feudalism. And it was called, he was the landowner. He was the giver of life, the bread giver. It was a codependent power person term. Stop using the word Lord. It has nothing to do with what was there originally. And just very briefly... That word for Lord, Maria, the Mar, I say we'll talk about it a little more later. Mar in Aramaic means a bedrock of strength, something coming from bedrock. You know the red rock in the sky, Mars? Mar and Rhea. What does Rhea or Rhea sound like? Re, Re, Ra, Ora. They're all Aramaic root sounds. Life, sun. Light, excuse me, light or sun. Rhea, Maria literally means one who shines a rhea, feminine light. Feminine light is not the masculine light that we see, but well, you mentioned about holding a baby. That light that a baby exudes, that's not something you're seeing, it's sensed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those who radiated that light from a place, from a bedrock of strength were called Lord. Interesting, Maria. If you put an M on the end of Maria, which is the letter Mem, 
it literally is Mariam or Miriam, which is the word Mary, intriguingly. So what we're going to do is a little bit briefly about prayer, and then what I'm going to do is actually pray the prayer for you. But I'm not going to pray it in a sort of just everyday wishy-washy, spit it out like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Even in Aramaic, I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's important. It's funny. You can actually find recordings of people speaking the Aramaic Lord's Prayer in all these different dialects, and they're usually going so fast, it's like they're trying to like do it at like a NASCAR race or something so that they can get the flag or something. Uh, it has nothing to do with it. Funny, in Matai, it doesn't say pray these words. In Matthew, it says pray in this way. Okay? Now, prayer is something that Michael mentioned setting a trap for God. That word in Aramaic is sluta. Sluta is the word prayer, okay? Now, the ta genders the word feminine. That's an intriguing thing. I don't want to go too deep, but I will say this in terms of language, and this is especially in Aramaic, specifically. There's a lot of language where languages where um, masculine and feminine get a little wishy-washy. It gets a little wishy-washy in some of the other Semitic languages. Let me explain what it means, okay? My perception of this flashlight that's in my hand is feminine, okay? The actual light itself that I'm holding is masculine. Feminine meaning experiential. Uh, you could say, you could say per, my perception of it, it's, it's a little bit of a slippery slope because we're learning so much about perception right now, but my awareness of the flashlight is feminine. The actual thing itself is masculine. Okay? Now, what that means is this. Sluta, prayer, isn't a thing. It's not words on a page. It's not words that you speak. It's your being. You remember when Yeshua said, Pray in my name. Anything you ask the Father in my name, John 15, 16. And a lot of times, all the time now, you hear, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, if you actually say in English, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you commit blasphemy. Number one, his name was not Jesus. Number two, that's not what name, Shem, Shemach, meaning my name, meant in Aramaic. Now this is the gist before you actually hear the prayer itself. Shem is this. Let me give you Shem. And if you study other Semitic languages, they're not Aramaic, okay? Let me give you it this way. A good example would be Michael Jackson. If I say Michael Jackson, who in this room is just seeing the letters, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J-A-C-K-S-O-N? Who's, who's happening with that? Just letters. Anybody? What happens when I say Michael Jackson? Aaron's especially smiling, Mr. Music Man. So it's like you're... you're what, you're probably seeing his face, you're probably hearing his voice, you're perceiving his consciousness, his overall what? Vibration, essence. You get what I'm saying? And that's Shem. Pray in my Shem is not, number one, pray in my name. Number two, the name isn't about the letters or the things that you speak, but rather when the name is invoked or spoken, you have the awareness of that person's energy pattern, essentially. And when you hear pray in my name, it's not saying the name Yeshua even, it's literally saying, pray from this place. And I'm pretty sure after he said that, he didn't go, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen that way. So what I'm going to do is give, give, give you a little bit of an example of that. That word, that setting a trap for God, slota, there's two aspects of that in Aramaic. One aspect is that you have a vision and or something that has been taken from a point of intention to a point of a goal and you hold that in your awareness and whether you hold it in your arms loving it and embracing it or you resist it as an example 
let's say there's, Michael uses this all the time. Uh, I'll say this, don't think about, don't think about Barack Obama, okay? I want you to think about something other than Barack Obama. No Barack Obama. Don't think Barack Obama. And occasionally people will say, Dale, I wanted to let you know I'm not thinking about what you said to think about. And I'm like, oh, what is it that you're not thinking about right now? And that's the trap. Now here's the thing. One aspect of slow or prayer is you have that vision. And this is a vision that either you are 100% for or against. Because as an example, if someone's got a nervous tick and you try not to think about it and eventually it drives you out of your mind, this is exactly the same thing. What you push back against, you recreate. It's much like a fractal. And anything that you hold in your awareness, your vision, expands just like this. And there's a force called rucha, which we'll get to later. Ruach in Hebrew, ruch in Arabic, pneuma in the Greek. Now, intriguingly, there's another aspect of prayer, which is not just a vision that you hold, like I want to manifest this or whatever that may be, but rather this, that you're just open there's nothing that you're seeking to create, but you're simply open in the humility and the essence of the moment, and it opens through you, and it literally lives through you. Like, as an example, let's look at it this way. Take a breath. Take another one. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let me ask you a little question. What's happening right now? You took two breaths. But what about right now? Are you breathing or are you being breathed? You see the difference? The first one had a goal to take a breath. But it's happening right now without the goal. And that expansion's still happening. This is the difference between what you want and heaven on earth. Your idea of heaven on earth is not heaven on earth. That's not a new earth. Heaven on earth is when your ideas get wiped clean off the slate and heaven can live through you. That's what a new earth comes from. And this is where prayer should come from. Not about words or ideas, but rather from the vibration, the essence itself. So I'm just going to ask you to be open for a few minutes. And I'm not going to, like I say, spit out some scholarly thing. I'm actually going to come down here and just make some sounds. We're going to make a sound first that... Can I throw in a thought before sure. you do that? Sure. First of all, interesting that the word heaven can be properly translated as expansion, the kingdom of expansion. Maya. And when uh, Dale speaks the Lord's Prayer, tones it, I'm going to just invite you to imagine as you close your eyes that, and, and we know that from a point of view of physics, time and space is an illusion. So I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself transported back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You're not listening to Dale Allen Hoffman. You're actually listening to Yeshua's voice and feeling his presence that opens and awakens you to that state where the active presence of love flows through you. Mm. If you spit out words, you're not praying. I, I, I want to acknowledge, Nick, before we do this, and it seems like it's like, okay, we're getting into this deep place and why would he do this? As an example, a couple of months ago, I sat across from you at West End Bakery here and you were like, oh, I've been learning the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And he had been working on it for about two weeks. So I'm expecting like a train wreck, clunky, you know, sidesteps, all kinds of wild stuff. Um, but from the first word, 
I felt his heart go. And it was like he got it. He got it. He got the heart. And it's funny, when you get the heart, when you get the vibration, the Shem, the prayer takes care of itself because it's never about the words, okay? So let's just be open. I'm just going to offer this to you. All you need to do is just be aware of your breath. I'm going to do a few tones before I make the actual, say the actual prayer itself. And I'm going to give you an English experiential translation. This is not a theological black and white literal words on the page. This is what's the breadth and the breath and what's the vibration and the essence of, essence of what this actually means. Okay? So just stay open. eternal being of which we are born forth from the realm of the all and the only. I am empty within the ecstasy of your presence and the purity of your name. Empower my creative expansion from your emergence from the unseen realms as I realize our strength and light as one on the manifest earth as in the unmanifest heavenly realms. Provide the nourishment of true insight and realization through me now and in every present moment. Release the echoes of my hidden past. Do not let me lose my true self in forgetfulness and wholly release me from the errors of my perception. For the undivided realm is the absolute, the all, and the only. And our strength of gleaming magnificence. From cosmic gathering to cosmic gathering. From age to age. From aeon to aeon. From moment to moment. From now to now. May these clear words be the rooted 
fertile earth from which all my actions flow. Amen. Amen. Now you can open your eyes or you can keep them closed. Um, it took me a while of working with Aramaic before I realized that what was, what's held in mind was the very thing that Yeshua was cracking like an eggshell. He was getting us to crack, you know, in the words of Joseph Shelton Pierce, cr the crack in the cosmic egg. Well, it's an interesting thought to <clears throat> pick up on. And if we look at this device we call a body-mind unit, <clears throat> there's some interesting Harvard research that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is, there are approximately 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in this structure, that in that same time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, the max amount of information that can go into your awareness or your perception the construct of your mind that makes things appear a certain way, and you remember Yeshua said, don't judge by appearances. These things that show up in your mind are appearances, and they're made of a maximum, according to that Harvard research, of nine chunks of information. And what those thumbprints do when we come into the world is they attempt to shut us down to this nine-bit mind where whatever is stored in the body's mind is all we have access to. And so we have this maximum, and I refer to it as metaphorically the nine-bit mind. And we've been forced into that perception, our so-called educational systems, which have nothing to do with education, the word educari comes from the root to draw out. It does not mean to put in. But those systems tend to shut us down to this nine-bit mind. And we lose awareness of everything else we're designed to be in touch with. Our ecstatic states come from what I call whole field perception. If we listen to Einstein, he says, on such things as matter, we've been all wrong. What we've heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibrations have become so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses, there is no matter. So we have this energy field, and we are designed to experience life through all facets of this energy field. When you go into the world of physics, you hear them saying that every molecule in the universe is in continuous communication with every other molecule in the universe. Now tie that physics idea to the ancients' idea of the Creator being omnipresent. If the Creator is omnipresent, and in that presence we live, move, and have our being, then obviously if we went off into every corner of the universe, we would find embodied love. And if I were to just place these hearts into every corner of our board and let that represent the presence of that love coming to us 
from every molecule in the universe. It's what the physicists are saying. Now, you think about that, and if every molecule is in continuous communication, does that mean that every molecule is continuously sending you information? And if your whole field is open, then you're receiving information and guidance from every molecule in the universe. If the Creator is omnipresent, embodied in all of this, could we properly say that these energies that physics is talking about are in fact the spirit? The ruha, the breath of the Creator coming to us, and as it comes to us, could we be guided by this whole creation if our fields were open to it, which kings don't like, because if you're open and you're guided by that, you become the offspring of the Creator. The ancient said, as many are sons and daughters of love, of God, as are led by the Spirit of God. If we hadn't been shut down to a nine-bit mind, if we were able to be open to receive this input from the whole creation, are we then properly called the offspring of the Creator? Sons and daughters of the Creator. Rather than sons and daughters of what's going on in the nine-bit mind. If you talk to a modern-day physiologist, they'll tell you that your so-called body has as its base element, carbon. Did the man named Yeshua live in continuous communication with the whole of the Creator's essence? Or did he live in his nine-bit mind? To those who lived in their nine-bit mind, he said, I have a different father than you. I have a different source than you. Your source comes from what is stored within your device and your nine-bit perception, your appearances. And if you live there, then you are governed and guided by Adamos, the red clay, carbon. And if you look at a carbon atom, what you'll find is that in each carbon atom, there are six electrons, six protons, and six neutrons. 666. The mark of the past. Everything stored in carbon-based memory is of the past. And if we're stuck in perception from the past, then we are the offspring of the liar, as Yeshua said. He said, your father's a liar. There's no truth in him. Anything that appears in your nine-bit mind from the past is from the past. It's obviously not true right now. But if you buy the perception that comes from the past, You'll act as though what was going on in you 2, 10, 20, 50, 5,000 generations ago is true now. And therefore you're stuck in the lie. That's what led Yeshua to say, there's no truth in that framer of your structure. And he says, I have a different father. I live in a different place. And I'm inviting you to go there. I'm here to connect you with the spirit of truth and to knock you out of your nine-bit mind. Those who are locked into their nine-bit mind are really into their money and their stuff and their control and their power and all the games that basically kings play.
What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.